The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we're going through this epistle by the Apostle Paul to one of his congregations, Church Plant in Corinth. We're going to be looking at verses 17. Actually, the section is 17 to 34. Today we're specifically looking at the conclusion of chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. There is a outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to use that, if you find that helpful at all. I'll be kind of following that four-point outline. Today's sermon I call Don't Abuse Communion. That's our Christmas message of the day. We had Christmas choir, and it is December, so our Christmas message of the week is that right out of 1 Corinthians 11, because Christ is at the very center of what Paul's talking about as we look to verses 27 to 34. Follow along as I read. As Paul's theme is telling the Corinthian believers a sobering reminder, don't abuse communion or the Lord's table. Actually begin at verse 17, but we're going to pick up at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself And in so doing, is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So says the Apostle Paul as he's wrapping up this issue about a proper way the Corinthians and us are to treat and deal with and celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist. Paul uses all those phrases to describe it. I give you just four points there to outline the theme of this text on not to abuse communion. So let's go ahead and look at those four points together, going verse by verse as Paul gave them. Last week, we just simply talked about the very simple way that Jesus instituted communion, transforming the Passover into the communion for the church. It was to be repeated often by believers as they gather together as the church. So verses 23 to 26, he just simply echoed the words of Jesus on the night before he was uh, crucified and betrayed and just gave a very simple outline of what the meaning and the symbolism was of the bread and the cup. Prior to that, verses 17 to 22, uh, Paul starts out this section rebuking them that they have been violating uh, communion as they came together as a church. And Paul caught wind of that uh, through some messengers and Uh, People have been affiliated with the Corinthian church and they were having problems in the church. Uh, Just to kind of set the context before we get to 27 to 34 briefly, uh, just by way of reminder, starting in chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through chapter 14, the last verse in these chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, Paul is addressing problems the Corinthians had in their corporate assembly as they came together as a church. Because prior to chapter 11, he was dealing with the personal and private matters for the most part. So there's a huge emphasis on what they were doing uh, as a church as they gathered, and he is solving problems. He's trying to correct their behavior. Uh, So that's the point of emphasis. And in chapter 11, 17 through 34, there was a problem with communion, and that's what he's dealing with. And so he addresses what the problem is up front, 17 to 22. He says, uh, 22, 26, here's how you should do communion. This is the way Jesus gave it and why. And then he follows up his argument 27 to 34 saying, so address it, fix it, and stop doing it the wrong way. Start doing it the right and the reverent way. So uh, that's the context we're looking at. So today what we're looking at, 27 to 34, uh, I put don't abuse communion because the theme of 27 to 34 is is Paul is, uh, he's reminding them, warning them, rebuking them, cautioning them. One thing that weaves all throughout verses 27 to 34 is the theme of judgment. Judgment. 
The, the Greek word for judgment is used six times in this text, 27 to 34, in its various forms. To judge. Sometimes it's got a preposition on the front of it to even make it more emphatic. Sometimes he puts the word at the front of a sentence to make it more emphatic. But that is the theme, verses 27 to 34, is judgment. So it's a sober warning. So that's we need to understand that context. Um, I, I want to say a word about judgment because it can mean a lot of different things depending upon the way it is applied in the context. And the word judgment can make us a little nervous and queasy. And maybe if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, well, I'm a Christian. All my sins have been forgiven. I'm not subject to judgment from God. And that's a fair question. Uh, so I did want to make a quick distinction because Paul makes this distinction subtly in this passage. Well, I want to talk about judgment. Uh, and here's the first principle before we even get into the four points because it's going to intersect with all four points. A truth we need to be reminded of and understand from the Bible is that God judges believers and unbelievers. God judges everybody. Just because I'm a Christian and got all my sins forgiven because I believe in Jesus doesn't mean I am not subject to the judgment of God. And I'm using judgment in a very generic, overarching term, kind of the way Paul does here. Because he refers to the judgment of believers, and he uses that word judgment for also unbelievers. So Paul applies that word judge, judgment, to believers and unbelievers. So God judges everyone, believers and unbelievers. Here's the follow-up point, or the corollary, is that God judges believers differently than he does unbelievers. That's huge. We are not, if I'm a Christian, I'm not judged the same way that an unbeliever is judged. So there is a distinction. So let me elaborate just a little bit on the distinction between God's judgment on believers and unbelievers. It's a simple way of saying it is that if you're a Christian, God does judge you and me. But he judges us through chastisement or discipline. Chastisement. That's what a parent does to the child that they love. Chastisement. They get corporal punishment when appropriate or a spanking or a verbal rebuke, whatever it is. That's chastisement. That is also a form of discipline. So that's uh, what God does. That's how God judges believers. Chastisement, discipline. It's different the way God deals with unbelievers. He doesn't just chastise them and discipline them, uh, God condemns unbelievers. God pours out his wrath on unbelievers. God does not pour out his wrath on believers. Huge difference. Let's go ahead and look at just... If you have your Bible, you can turn to John 3.36. And here's an example out of Jesus' own mouth, Jesus' words, that show us how... God's wrath is being poured out on unbelievers. God does not pour out his wrath on Christians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 3. It's in uh, John three, thirty-six, and that's at the tail end of that most famous verse. We love John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. He gave him how? To die on the cross as a substitute for sin. Then he rose again from the dead. This is the Lord calling sinners to himself and anybody who believes in his death as a substitution and believes that he rose again from the dead and believes in him as Lord and confesses their sin to him and believes in him as Savior and they get saved, they become a Christian, they become a believer. And then uh, this statement is summarized in John 3.36. And here's what it says. This may very well have actually been John uh, the Baptist saying these words in verse 36. It's either uh, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, but it came from God, so... Same thing. He who believes in the Son, okay, that's a Christian. So that's maybe many of you today. How is the Bible relevant to me? You're in verse 36. Every single person in this room is in verse 36. It's your autobiography. I'm in the Bible? Yes, you are. Verse 36. Check it out. He who believes in the Son. If you are a Christian, that is you. And here's what applies to you. The one who believes in the Son, the one who is born again, the one who is a Christian, the one who knows Christ, has, present tense, eternal life. Isn't that amazing? You have eternal life. You have total forgiveness of sin. You are in the family of God. You are secure forever. You know God in this life because that's when eternal life begins. You've been adopted into his family. You're going to inherit all the blessings of Christ. God the Father looks down on you as a Christian and sees you as a child, a son of God, sees you pure, sees you pristine, as white as snow, just as Christ is sinless and white as snow. That's what that means, to have eternal life. It applies and begins in this life, and then it carries over into the future. So that when you die, you go immediately into heaven. 
You don't go into soul sleep. You don't go through purgatory. You don't go to hell. You go immediately into the presence of Almighty God in heaven where it is pure bliss for all eternity in His immediate presence. A glorious, glorious truth according to Scripture. That is eternal life. And you have it now. You can't lose eternal life because once you have eternal life, you've been adopted into God's family. Once you've been saved, God holds you in the grip of His hand. He is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. No one can snatch you from the security of His hand. So if you have eternal life, you have it forever. If you're a Christian, you have that now. Can I get an amen? So that's you in the Bible, John 3.36. The one who believes in Jesus Christ, his gospel, that he is the God-man, that he came here for a reason, that he died on the cross, that he died as a substitute for sinners, as he said he would, that he was buried, that he rose himself from the dead, that he ascended on high, that he reigns as Lord of all. He has a message. He's seeking sinners with his gospel. You believed it, you got saved. That is the Jesus we believe in. The one who believes that, literally, sincerely, truly, has, present tense, eternal life. That's for believers. But, and that is a huge contrast, but there's, not, there's news that's not so good. The one who does not obey the Son. Some translations say the one who does not believe the Son. It is the same thing. To not believe Jesus and submit to Him is to disobey Jesus. And that's why... Both translations are legitimate. The one who does not believe, the one who does not obey Jesus, has rejected Him as Lord, as Lord, has heard His message and stiffens their arm to Him and to God. They want to be the Lord of their own life. They don't believe that they're a wicked sinner. They don't think they need a Savior. They want to do things their own way. That's the essence of an unbeliever who doesn't submit and bow the knee to God and specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in the present tense. The one who continues to not obey the Son, the one who continues in unbelief in this lifetime, this is describing someone who is not a Christian. Right now, this could have been, if you're a Christian now, this was you at one point. This was true of me before I got saved. This was true of you before you got saved. And this is true of some people who will never get saved because they will continue to reject Christ even to their last breath. So this is referring to an unbeliever. He who does not obey or believe in Jesus, who is not saved, not born again, not regenerate, not a Christian, will not see eternal life if they remain in that state of unbelief. But the wrath of God, the anger of God, the hatred of God, the condemnation of God... His full fury manifests from heaven against sin. That's what that means. The wrath of God abides, resides, present tense, continues to remain on, hunt down, hound, press down on the unbeliever. The heavy, almighty, holy hand of God's wrath is pressing down on unbelievers right now in their current state. And that's what God was doing to me. He was, he was chasing me for 19 years. And I was running. And His hand of holy wrath was pressing down on me, smothering me, making me feel guilt, trying to open my eyes, trying to woo me to repentance. And many times I turned around and did this. I can consciously remember that through high school. But God doesn't relent. The wrath of God abides on unbelievers whether they realize or not i mean most unbelievers are like uh no god loves me or they either, they either don't believe in god or they do believe in a god and, oh god loves me god loves everybody no well yeah there is the love of god but because you've rejected him and don't come to him and don't bow the knee his wrath is abiding on you right now pressing down on you right now no it's not yes it is they just don't realize it they don't recognize it they don't submit to it they don't fear it but the wrath is there. It is abiding down on them. And that's why Romans 1.18 is so clear. That the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's what it says. Present tense in the verb. The wrath of God is currently right now being poured down and revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of the human race. Of those who don't believe it. That's the exact same truth we see here. There are two kinds of people in the world. That's it. It's just believers and unbelievers. It's those who know the peace and the forgiveness of God as they are adopted into his family and have heavenly protection and glory from him. And then there's the other class of people who have 
consciously, willingly, knowingly rejected Christ and his message, and his wrath is pressing down on them and chasing them and hounding them. And he is angry. He's angry at their sin. He wants them to repent. He's calling them to repentance. He was calling us to repentance. Those of us who are now saved, we were in this category. That's the good news. You can change categories. You can go from being pressed down by God's wrath into the family of God being totally forgiven of all of his wrath. Every single one of us deserves death, and that's why Jesus Jesus died the death that I deserve. He absorbed the Father's wrath that should have been pouring down on me, but because I believe Jesus is my substitute, God doesn't pour his wrath down on me anymore. He loves me, forgives me of all of my sin. He is not angry at me. Now he sees me as a loving father, and when I sin, he has to discipline and chastise me just to help me grow, but he he has still forgiven me of all of my sin. He still loves me. I'm secure in my relationship with him. That's true of every Christian. So we needed to make that distinction. As Paul uses that word judgment, going back to 1 Corinthians 11, because he uses it six times, and he applies judgment of God to believers and unbelievers in this passage, and I didn't want you to be confused. God judges everybody for their sin, but he judges Christians and unbelievers differently. And he judges believers through chastisement and discipline as a loving father. And he judges unbelievers with his holy wrath as he presses down on them, trying to woo them to repentance. So now let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Now that we have a context and look what Paul has to say to these believing Corinthians who are abusing the Lord's table, looking at the first point. Don't abuse communion. Point number one is the violation. What were the Corinthians doing wrong? Verse 27. Well, they were being selfish. That's the main problem. Today, when we talk about the Lord's table or communion, there are five views of the meaning of communion. You can buy the book from Zondervan or whatever it is. And it's a theological issue. The Catholics believe this. The Lutherans believe this. uh, The Calvinists believe this. The Presbyterians believe this. The Baptists believe this. uh, And on and on it goes. Different theological interpretations of the meaning of communion in the elements of the bread and the wine. Paul is not even addressing that. It has nothing to do with what Paul is correcting the Corinthians about. Paul is not correcting the theology of the Corinthians' view of communion. He was correcting their behavior and their attitude, not their theology. And actually, their, their sin, it was pretty straightforward. They were being selfish. That was the sin. That was the problem he's correcting. Just let's keep it simple to the context. He says in verse 17, uh, when you come together, wow, it's not really a good thing. It's actually a bad thing. Why? What are they doing? Well, when you come together to celebrate communion, there are divisions among you. There are cliques. There's social stratification that is unholy in your midst. You're making false distinctions among one another. The haves and the have-nots. That is wrong. The body of Christ is one body. We are all on equal ground. There's an equal playing field. As we all, as sinners and feet of clay fallen and finite stand before an almighty holy god we're all in the same category when we come together as christians right we're all in the same category and paul saying man you're making false distinctions you're looking down your nose at other christians when you come together some of you are being totally selfish and you run to the front of the line of the fellowship meal because you want the good food and more food and you totally neglect others as a matter of fact you eat it all and don't even care about others who come late as they straggle in for whatever reason, because they had to work late or they were cleaning up the sanctuary. And they come and they don't even get any food. And they are hungry and you don't even care about the starving. And some of you are indulging in the, the wine so much that you're drunk. That's what, literally what he said. That was the problem. It's a very practical problem. It's an unbelievable problem because we haven't had this problem yet at our church. People totally smashed on alcohol in the fellowship meal. That hasn't happened yet, but we are all susceptible and vulnerable to these kind of gross sins. Believe it or not, we are. When that's what the Corinthians were doing. Paul's just aghast. It's like, wow, I cannot believe this. And bottom line is you, you get the wrong attitude. The irony is you're supposed to come together at the Lord's Supper to remember God's greatness, Christ's greatness, and what he did as a savior for you and me as a sinner. It's kind of a reminder of how pathetic and despicable we are. Really. And when you start thinking about how pathetic you are in light of the glory of Christ, you shouldn't be looking down your nose at other people. Paul's like, come on, this is a no-brainer. This is Christianity 101. The bread and the cup remind us of Christ's greatness and our own sinfulness. Of why We're reminded of why we continue to need a Savior. So that was the problem, that was the violation. It was totally selfish. You're not waiting for each other at the meal. That's verse 27. 
Uh, Therefore, whoever eats and the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Oh, and also the part of the sin was they were eating the the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. Well, what is the un, what does it mean to eat it in an unworthy manner? To take communion in an unworthy manner? Well, there's a zillion ways we can do it in an unworthy manner, but there's a very specific way Paul was talking about the Corinthians how they were eating it in an unworthy manner. They were not taking communion, celebrating communion for the right purpose. If I were to ask you, what is the main purpose we eat communion? It'd be interesting to get spontaneous answers from you to see if we're all on the same page. What is the main reason Christians should partake of communion? As a Christian, you should know that answer. This is basic, and it's not a mystery. But people get confused. Theologians write books about it, missing the target. What is the purpose of taking communion when we come together? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not to come together uh, and hang out with your clique at church and neglecting others you don't know or don't like. It's not for the purpose of coming together and taking communion so that you might earn forgiveness when you eat the bread and drink the cup. You don't earn any forgiveness when you drink the cup and eat the bread, by the way. You can't do anything. I can't do anything to earn forgiveness. That is not the purpose of taking communion. The purpose of communion is not an immolation. That's a technical term meaning a sacrifice. That's what the Catholic Church means. They celebrate the immolation, the sacrifice, that Jesus is literally sacrificed over the altar with the bread and the cup during transubstantiation. He is crucified again. Repeat, no, that, he's crucified at one time, says Peter in Hebrews. One sacrifice was sufficient. And it's also, we don't celebrate communion to have some mystical experience. So then why do we do it? Well, Paul already told us twice. When you celebrate communion, you do it to remember. That's it. To remember Jesus, his death for you. To remember. And also, he said, and every time we do it, we also do it to proclaim. We are proclaiming his death. We remember his death, and we are actually proclaiming his death until he comes again. And first, it's a proclamation to ourself to remind us of how we got saved from our horrible, wicked sins. We're actually all unworthy to even take communion. Do you know that? We are all unworthy to be at the Lord's table. We are all unworthy. But by virtue of belief in Christ and his gospel, he makes us worthy and allows us to come to his meal. And then because of that privilege, we need to eat it in a worthy manner. And it's in a selfless way. Thinking about the Lord, first and foremost, remembering him, his greatness, what he did, and also proclaiming his death. So that's the violation, it's just selfishness. Uh, number two, that's pretty practical for us, isn't it? Pastor, how do we apply this message? Don't be selfish. <laughs> that's really relevant because we all have that sinful tendency. Number two, uh, there's the violation and then there's the examination. And that's verse 28 when we come together for communion. But a man or a woman or a child whoever is a christian and is taking communion before they take communion and eat the bread and drink the cup is what he's talking about in verse 20 you must examine yourself examine yourself examine is a very specific word it means to test to prove to investigate to scrutinize thoroughly and what are you scrutinizing yourself and what are you scrutinizing about yourself your attitude. For the Corinthians, it was their bad attitude. And for us, it's the same thing. We scrutinize and examine our attitude. Well, what about our attitude? Primarily, in context from this passage, it is your attitude that you have towards other Christians that you're in fellowship with. Because that was the Corinthians' problem. So when I come to communion at my church and I'm about to partake of the bread and the cup, I need to examine my own heart with God's help and His Holy Spirit in keeping with truth and evaluate myself and put myself to the test regarding my attitude, especially in my attitude towards other believers. Is there bitterness in my soul towards another believer? Do I have unforgiveness towards another church member or fellow Christian? And have I been coddling it and holding on to it and protecting it and nurturing it? Do I have a self-centered, arrogant, condescending attitude towards fellow people in the church that aren't in my clique or in my group or that I don't associate with? What is my attitude towards people in the church that I frankly don't like? What is my attitude towards other believers in the church 
that I just kind of ignore and I don't even know. These are all totally relevant to what the Corinthians were doing. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. Examine yourself, examine your attitude towards other people to make sure that you don't have a sinful, condescending, arrogant, prideful attitude towards fellow sinners that Jesus died for just as much as He died for you. That's why you're celebrating communion. Because of His death for sinners. You are no better than the sinner on your right or your left. That is what He's saying. And that's why, in, and I put the cross-reference down in Matthew chapter 5. Do you have anger in your heart? Do you have bitterness in your heart? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart? And do you have it towards a fellow believer? Well, if you do, do not dare go to worship God in the public assembly. Do not dare go to the temple and make a sacrifice. Do not dare go be with the saints and pray and do your religious deed. If you've got one iota of a seed of resentment, unforgiveness in your heart towards a fellow believer... How dare you? This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Make a priority. Do it quickly. He used the word quickly. If that's true of you as a believer, and you've got something unresolved against another believer, put your offering aside. Don't do your religious duty. Don't do your religious deed. Don't do your religious spiritual service at the local church until you go immediately and quickly to your fellow believer that you have a hang-up with. Talk to them privately after you've been prayered up, seeking reconciliation, forgiving each other between the two of you, equally as pathetic sinners before a holy God. Get right with that fellow believer. When you've done that, then you are right with God. Then you go back, pick up your offering, and then you can offer your public sacrifice of worship to Almighty God after you've done due diligence and maintenance in all of your spiritual relationships with fellow believers. That is what Paul is talking about. He's just simply echoing and amplifying what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Get right with your fellow believers that you meet with at the local church. Get this. Starting in your own home. Ooh, that, wow, I wish you didn't say that. That's hard. Starting with your older brother, your younger sister. Start with your husband, Christian wife. Start with your wife, Christian husband. That's where it's got to start. Or it could be start with your unbelieving spouse. Start with your unbelieving siblings or children. Start with your unbelieving relatives. But primarily, Paul is emphasizing a relationship with other believers. But if you can do that on a regular basis where it's hardest in the circle of the home life, you can carry that over as a discipline into the church with fellow saints. That's what God requires. It's absolutely basic. Basic Christianity. After all, has not Christ forgiven you of more sins than anyone has sinned against you? That's what Paul reminds us of in Colossians. Since God has forgiven you of so much, you have no reason but to forgive your fellow brother of sin after sin after sin, 70 times 7 per day. So that's the examination that needs to happen. By the way, now you've got to have balance here. And Paul talks about judging yourself properly in Romans 12.3. He says... Uh, judge yourself sober-mindedly with a level head and a balanced way. Uh, don't go from one extreme to the other because some people can get into this morbid self-speculation or introspection where they just think about themselves all the time. That's self-centered, grotesque, and illegitimate and unbiblical. But some people do that, and they can tend to be that way. Always thinking about themselves and hyperly self-conscious. and That's not what he's talking about. Then there's the, the flip side where people are just oblivious and they don't they never evaluate themselves. They never examine themselves. But self-examination is actually a basic Christian discipline because it comes up so many times in Scripture explicitly right here. Examine yourself. And then in Romans 12, 3, Paul says, but do it with sober-mindedness. Do it with balance. Sound judgment, he says, with a level head, informed by Scripture, with the help of the Spirit, in consultation with godly wisdom. That's a good way to do it. That's a beautiful balance right there. Asking for God's help. And he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. So... We have examination, which is honest introspection. It's honest. It is balanced. It's level-headed. It's in keeping with wisdom. It, by the way, it's present tense. Present tense. It, this should be a regular practice in our life, not just for communion. Say, some churches have communion like once a month or once every two months. You don't just examine yourself and the sin in your life and your bad attitude towards others every time you have communion. We should be doing this daily. 
Examine our heart before the Lord. God, show me if I am uh, in sin or have an, a wrong attitude towards a fellow believer. God, expose my sin. That's what David prayed out of his heart, out of the Psalms. And God, forgive me. Change my heart. And then, you know, wait, because you might have a hardened heart. It might be really hard to pray for some people that you're mad at. How do you do that? Well, here's one practical way to do it. Actually, there's two. You pray for that person specifically that God would bless them. Well, that's after you pray. God, soften my lousy, hardened heart towards this person. Secondly, God, bless this person. Help them to do well in their job. Help them to to bless you and be obedient to you. And then if you really want to go the extra mile towards softening your wretched, hardened heart towards this person you're mad at, uh, buy buy them a a beautiful gift, something that you would want, and then wrap it up and, and give it to them with a nice encouragement card. And you don't have to be fake and plastic and say something nice you don't mean. You just put a, a Bible verse on there. Dear so-and-so, great Bible verse to bless them. Give them the gift because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's a, I've done this before at the counsel of a godly, wise pastor. It works if you're open. So um, that's just practical suggestion. So that's the examination. So the violation, they were being selfish. The examination is we need to examine ourselves before communion to make sure we have the right attitude towards fellow believers there's a condemnation that comes with not doing these things for violating the lord's supper let's look at it point number three the condemnation is just simply divine chastening i've already referred to this divine chastening making a distinction between chastening and discipline versus god's wrath or god's condemnation one of my favorite verses in the bible is romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for who for those who are in christ jesus yippee that is an awesome verse because romans 7 14 through 25 is so depressing sin is there it is constant it is real it is unescapable it is here till i die or jesus comes oh wretched man that i am and then romans 8 1 comes there is therefore now no condemnation despite your indwelling sin if you know jesus and then he goes on to talk about the blessings of the indwelling Holy Spirit. To counter that, yes, you have indwelling sin, but you know what else you have living in you indwelling? Romans 8, the next The Holy Spirit lives in you. And what's greater, the Holy Spirit living in you or your sin in you? There's the answer. There's reason to celebrate. It's the Holy Spirit. So I'm making a difference between condemnation, wrath, versus chastening and discipline. Because Paul does. He's very consistent. 29 to 32, let's look at it. Uh, the condemnation or the warning for the one for the Christian who eats and drinks the Lord's table or communion. When we do that, every time we gather as a church and we have communion, we are invoking almighty God and his judgment upon us. We're inviting that. That's a scary, frightening prospect. But that's what he means by verse 29 for the Christian who eats and drinks communion. Eats and drinks or welcomes and invites the very judgment, the searching holy eyes of almighty God in our congregation and in our hearts and minds. That's why when we come together as communion, the communion meal, it's not just any meal. It is a sacred meal. There, it is a meal like no other. There is a spiritual component that is beyond comprehension, but it is real. It's a celebration, but we should go into it with fear and trembling at the same time. So we drink judgment to ourselves during communion. Condemnate, or, or judgment could be um, chastisement if we don't judge the body rightly. So in other words, after we examine ourselves and we decide, say you're mad at some fellow Christian, but when you're examining yourself for communion, you're thinking, oh, I'm good. Jesus, I'm good. <laughs> and you're like, uh, no, you're not good. Because you're not being honest with yourself. You're blinded by your own sin. We, we're all vulnerable to that. So if we don't judge rightly, Paul says, then you're going to subject yourself to the chastisement of God. He's going to give you and me a spiritual spanking, and it's going to hurt to get our attention. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you... See, this is what the Corinthians were doing. They're coming together for communion. Yeah, yeah God, I'm good. I'm good. No, you aren't good. Your attitude stinks. You're prejudiced. You're excluding others. You're immoral. You're condescending. You think your sins aren't as bad as the next person's sins. You forgot what communion is about. 
and you got a bad attitude towards this fellow believer and you're not dealing with it properly. You are blinded by your own pride and sin. And then they engaged in communion. And as a result, they invited the judgment and the chastisement of God upon themselves as a Christian because of their unrecognized, unrepentant sin. This is a reality in our life. This is true in a crowd this big. No doubt this is true of some of you in here today. I'm good. I'm going to church to worship God. And it could be maybe you're not good because of something you're holding onto your heart towards another believer. So that's what he's talking about. And so Paul says, you know what? Some of you aren't good. You're not judging properly. You're not examining yourself properly or objectively or biblically or honestly. And as a result, you are being chastised and disciplined by God. And you should see it as evidence in your congregation, Corinthians, if you just wake up and look around. It's not just the flu that's going around. It's an epidemic of God's holy judgment through chastisement and discipline upon disobedient believers with hardened hearts. For this reason, many among you, it wasn't just a few. Many in the congregation, it was noticeable. They are weak and sick. This is, they are literally physically weak and physically sick. And sick, really sick. It's like an epidemic hit the local church. And it got worse. Some were weak and sick, but some got worse. It says, and even a number sleep. And a number. Several of your people in your congregation have died unexpectedly, unexplainably recently. Why is that? Because of God's holy chastisement came into this church and literally killed many of the believers because of their unrepentant sin. You mean God, the loving Father, will judge some of His children with death? Really? That does not sound like the love of God. That doesn't sound like a Jesus with the warm and fuzzies. Really, does God do that to His people? That sounds mean. That sounds unloving. This is a common response and view of the world about what God is like. They, they want only His good attributes, the happy ones. Love, mercy, patience, forgiveness, goodness, blessings. And they, they don't want His holiness, His righteousness, His wrath, His sinlessness. They ignore those just as vitally important attributes, characteristics about God. So, yes, God the Father even chastens and disciplines His own children that He loves, that He's forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ, and He disciplines them in many ways. It's not always with physical chastening. It could be in other ways. It could be circumstances in life. It's at His discretion, by the way, how He wants to chasten us. Most of the time, most of the time, most of the time, when God is chastening us in a specific way, we don't even know. We don't know He's doing it. We don't know. He's an infinite God. But He does everything for His plan and His purpose. But He does chasten His children with sickness and even physical death. And it's all—it's in the Bible. Way back even in the Old Testament. Okay, I want you to carry the ark this way. Alright? And don't do this, but do this. If you do this, and you're not supposed to, you're going to be in big trouble. And Uzzah, Uzzah, what was his name, Uzzah? I believe he's probably a believer. Uzzah is probably in heaven. And hopefully Uzzah doesn't remember what happened in this lifetime. Because Uzzah was trying to carry God's holy ark the wrong way. And God struck him dead on the spot. So, And David was aghast at this. I mean, it may be that David got angry at God for doing that. Oh, what in the world are you doing, God? And <laughs> Whoa, David, don't mess with the holy sovereign one. So that's in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, one of the stories you're familiar with, where they're having a Sunday night Vespers service in the first church, of, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5, where there were three to 5,000 men who were members. This was a huge mega church of maybe 10,000 people. Who knows where they met? It could have been outside or wherever it was. And then one of the co- uh, people in the congregation, uh, Ananias, professing believer, I think he was a, probably a Christian, Gave money to the church and said, hey, I designate this for this missions fund. And here's all the money. And he he lied. He wasn't giving everything that he said he would give. He just categorically lied to Peter and the apostles. He lied to the Holy Spirit. God knew it. And so God struck him dead on the spot. 
in the evening vesper service. And then uh, Peter calls the ushers. Hey, uh, ushers, Robert Sansford, can you guys grab that by the ankles and drag him out of here? And go bury him and we'll see him in heaven someday. And then the wife walks in, Sapphire, a little later and she's all happy. Yippee! And everybody's kind of, uh-oh. And she doesn't even, she's oblivious, doesn't even notice that her husband's dead and got killed by God and dragged out of church. And, and then she lies about the money her and her hubby were going to give to the church. And God, the Holy Spirit, strikes her dead on the spot in the middle of a church service. Hey, ushers, yeah, can you get, grab her too by the ankles? Go put her next to her husband, bury her in her grave. We'll see her in heaven too. So I believe that was an example of a holy God judging his people, his children, through chastisement and discipline to the point of death because of their sin. That doesn't mean he's going to do it to all of us the same way, the, the same time. It is at God's discretion how he wants to chastise us. But you mean God will chastise me, possibly as a Christian, or discipline me? Absolutely. We all need it, don't we? Read Romans 12, maybe this week, chapter 12, 1 through 11. And you will see some good news in there and you'll see some scary news in there. And starts out with the good news. Praise God for Jesus, the author of our salvation. Yippee! All of my sins have been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. But then it says, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith. Now that could be cause for rejoicing, but it could also be cause for being frightened. The perfecter? What do you mean the perfecter? You mean I need to be perfected more? You mean, you mean I'm not perfect? Why am I not perfect? And then the next couple of verses talks about our sin. Yee. And then it goes on for the next eight verses to say, God the perfecter, Jesus the Savior is going to deal with every single one of our sins through spiritual chastisement, spiritual spankings as a loving Heavenly Father. And He chastises and disciplines every single one of us who are His children. And we are getting spankings. So if you're thinking, wow, being a Christian is not easy, that's, that's true for a lot of reasons. Persecution, the devil, your own sin, but also you got God the Father chastening you and me continually with spiritual spankings. that They're not comfortable. But they are for our good and for God's glory. So that's a theology of chastening. So that's the condemnation. Uh, let's go on to point number four. Let me finish reading verses 29 to 32. Some are dead. By the way, uh, verse 30, it says, some of you, God's judging some of you Christians with sickness, but also sleep. Actually, the word, uh, koimontai, koimo, koima. Coma, coma, coma. Took me a while. I think I finally got it. What's a coma? Somebody, they look like they're dead. That's the word. They look like they're dead. Sleep is probably not the best, most specific translation. They're dead. They look, a dead person looks like they're asleep. That's why our translation translates it that way. Some of you sleep. It's kind of a nice way of saying dead too. But some of God kills some of them, puts them to sleep through death. By the way, some uh, even Christian denominations have taken this verse to say that there is soul sleep when you die. So when you die, you don't go to heaven or hell. Or when you die, the Christian goes to heaven, but when the unbeliever dies, they go into soul sleep. They don't go to hell. They don't go to purgatory. They don't have conscious punishment from God. They go into soul sleep. They don't even acknowledge an existence. They basically go into non-existence. You mean evangelical Christians teach and preach that? Yeah, it's all over the place. Really? Well, where do you get that from? This is their verse. They only need one. This is the one they use. And they're totally misinterpreting and taking it out of context. It's talking about death. Physical death when it says sleep. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Man, if I were you, this is the way I reacted when I read and studied this passage. Verse 31 is one of my new favorite passages, verses in the entire Bible. But, Christian, if we examine ourselves properly and make an objective, correct, biblical judgment about ourselves and our state before God and our attitude towards others, and when we see sin, we deal with it, we own up to it, we expose it, we confess it, we get right, we get reconciled with the believer and right with God, when we do that every single time with our sin, something amazing happens. But if we judged ourselves properly, we would not be judged by God. Wow! I don't know about you, but I do not want the judgment, the chastisement and discipline of Almighty God. I don't. I'm going to be honest. I'm a sissy. I want to avert his, re- or his judgment and chastisement. I want to avoid pain. And there's actually one way we can practically do that. It is with self-evaluation. Because here's the fact. I said, at my, one of my opening lines was, God judges everyone. God judges every Christian. And God will judge every unbeliever. He's going to deal with it. What we sow, we will reap. Whether it's good or bad. 
We are none of us are getting away with any sins. Now, judicially, positionally, before Jesus Christ, all of my sins have been condemned on the cross of Jesus. So I am forgiven for all of my sins. But practically speaking, some of my sins, if I hold on to sin, if I don't repent of known sin, God is going to give me a consequence for that. I'm not going to hell for that. But if I don't deal with it in this life, admit it and confess it, God is going to deal with me at some point in the future, in the afterlife, before the judgment seat of Christ. And He's going to open our eyes and say, you know what, you're not good. There's sin you didn't deal with, honestly. And it needs to be exposed. And it will be humiliating for us, is one of Paul's words. And as a result, one of the consequences isn't purgatory, pain, hell, but is loss of eternal reward. So the more things that we can be honest about in this life and confess before God, God, search my heart. That's why David, I think, pleaded so hard. God, search my heart, expose, forgive my sin, and expose any sin I don't even know about that I am ignorant of. God, please expose it to me. And we usually don't like... God will answer that prayer, I guarantee. And you know what? We don't like the way God answers that prayer because that's what David is praying. God, please forgive me of all my sin and all my sin, even the sin of omission and commission and even those sins I do not know about. And God answers that prayer and then here comes his prophet and says, you the man, you got a two by four in your eye and you don't even know it, King David. What? And so his prophet exposed him and David didn't initially want to believe that, but that was actually an answer to prayer. So be careful what you pray about. Because you might have somebody pointing the finger in your face who loves you, is a messenger of God trying to expose sin. You better be real careful to resist that. Because you might be resisting what God's trying to do in your life and in my life to expose sin. But it's just an amazing verse. If you read it and meditate on it and study it and think about it, if we judge ourselves rightly... By the way, this is present tense. Ongoing examination, evaluation of ourselves and our status before God regarding our sin. If we do this on a regular, ongoing basis as a discipline of the Christian life, and we are in tune with God, and we and our conscience is nagging us, and we, we sense that guilt and we don't know why, and the Holy Spirit's trying to inform us, red alert, deal with your sin. Deal with your relationship. If we do it honestly and rightly, there is blessing for that. There is reward for that. There's relief. There's a freed up conscience. There's reconciled relationships. There's a, a beautiful... A relationship we have with the Father in a practical manner in Jesus won't be hindered or undermined. We would not be judged. So we can avert and avoid some of these future judgments, chastisement from Almighty God. I'll never forget when a friend of mine called me after a long period of time where we had kind of a, a breach in our relationship and a falling out, and, and he finally called after a long period of time. And then we started talking. And he said he initiated communication because he wanted to ask for my forgiveness. And I said, praise the Lord. And then he gave me his reason why. Because I don't want to have to deal with this with Jesus when we get to heaven. And I said, praise the Lord. I don't either. I'm your new best buddy. That is a true story. And we have reconciled. And it was a fellow pastor. So that was awesome. And But that's what I thought of when I saw this verse. So I'm probably going to be standing hugging him when we get to heaven together. When we go before the throne of Jesus, I'm being facetious, but anyway, verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. And that's just saying everything I just talked about. God will chastise us and discipline us as Christians when necessary for our good, but we will not suffer condemnation and the holy wrath of God like unbelievers. Let's go on to the last point, and that is the exhortation. So in light of all this, Paul wraps it up. Okay, Corinthians, your problem was you're being selfish, self-centered, and you weren't waiting for other believers when they came to uh, the Lord's table at the love feast. So just get it right. Be like Christ. Be selfless. Love on others. Be self-oriented. And wait for them to arrive. And when you're having communion... Examine yourself in your own sin. Think about how Jesus died for you and for the rest of the body of Christ and how the rest of the body, we are all one family, equal before God, forgiven sinners. And God receives all the glory and praise. Can I get one more amen? And that's Paul's fitting conclusion on number four. The exhortation is just prefer 
one another. And he says, as I conclude, verse 33, So then, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you come together to have communion with the church to eat, just simply wait for one another. Be courteous. Philippians 2. If anybody's hungry, and if you're just going to church, if you're just going to the fellowship meal to eat and pig out, then just do that at home before you get to church. Let them do that at home so that you will not come together at church for judgment needlessly. doesn't need to happen. You can avert and avoid the chastisement of Almighty God in this area. Now, the remaining matters regarding problems ahead of communion, Paul says, I don't have time in this letter, so I'll talk to you later when I come to visit you. And he did come to visit them a couple of more times. One was really bad, and one went well. And we'll talk about that in the future. But anyway, there's a lot of practical stuff for us to take uh, as we lay our hearts before God. So let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for this opportunity to study His Word. Father, we do thank You for uh, the truth of Your Word. Thank You for preserving Corinthians for us for 2,000 years. Thank You for using saints of the ages who are careful to preserve it, and some even gave their life sacrificially. And we are the beneficiaries. God, that we would have the same attitude and reverence for the truth of your word for future generations of believers and unbelievers that they might be saved. And God, help us today to examine our hearts honestly, soberly, expose our sins so that we can see it, own up to it, be honest, confess it, ask for forgiveness, get reconciled, be right with other believers so that we can be one and be a wonderful testimony for Jesus Christ to the world. And we need your help desperately. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.